From ancient times, the Liturgy of the Hours has served as the public and communal prayer of God's people. It has been called the Vox Sponsae, the voice of a bride, addressed to her bridegroom. It is the very prayer which Christ himself, together with his church, offers to the Father for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. Hey everyone, you are listening to Vox Sponsae, a podcast on the Liturgy of the Hours. After taking a couple weeks off, we are back for episode 4. My name is Nathan Wigfield, and I serve as the director of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer in Cranberry, Pennsylvania. In just a second, I will be joined by my good friend Gabriel Crawford in Seattle, Washington. But before that, I want to encourage you to visit the website of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer at liturgyofthehours.org. There you can find all kinds of resources on the Liturgy of the Hours, including a free PDF guide to getting started, page numbers for praying with the church each day of the year, a blog, online store, and more. When you visit our website, you can also sign up for our monthly online newsletter and receive a free copy of our night prayer book. Be sure to look us up on Facebook and Instagram, which we update regularly with inspiring quotes, sacred art, and information on events that we host at our retreat center like the upcoming Liturgy of the Hours workshop on March 7th and our annual Women's Retreat on March 28th and 29th. Lastly, we want to hear from you. If you have any questions for us or would like to give us feedback on the podcast, please email us at info at liturgyofthehours.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Good morning, Gabriel. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing real well. Well, kind of. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to do this episode because I'm all out of coffee. <laughs> and so I'm having a real great tea. I'm seeing a common theme here <laughs> in, the, in these last episodes. Coffee is absolutely essential to the success of this podcast. Yeah, it, it really is. So Earl, Earl Grey tea, just, I don't know, in my experience, it just doesn't do, do the trick. I, yeah, I like it. It's nice. It's nice, but it's, you know, tea's not coffee. It's true. So <laughs> oh, we'll see how, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. 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 All right. So we're picking up uh, this week on uh, continuing with the first uh, few paragraphs of the general instructions and really talking about the early Christian witness uh, to fixed our prayer. And last week we went pretty deep into the Jewish roots of the Liturgy of the Hours, talking about the Second Temple Judaism and the practices of prayer, both within the temple, but also in the public and private life of uh, first century Jews. And this was uh, really illuminating for me. I hope it was for others as well. I think it did a good job at setting the context for uh, this early Christian witness to prayer and how there really was precedent. Uh, at this time for a regular regimen of of daily prayer. And I think we're going to fill that out even more today. We're going to talk about the the apostles and this daily regimen of prayer that we see in Acts. Uh, But we're also going to talk about the context of that within the Roman world, also uh, continuing on through, uh, leading up through the first few centuries of the church, how this uh, really took shape, shape among Christians. And so I think what we'll see here, at least my hope is, we'll see this, this development where what we can gather in Acts is that this fixed hour prayer that was happening among the apostles that is witnessed to in the scriptures, you know, actually does, uh, you know, while it takes place in seed form, it really continues on and develops uh, to become eventually what we know as the Liturgy of the Hours. Uh, so I'm just going to read for us first off with the paragraph uh, from the general instructions that we had read from last time, because this is going to be once again, our starting place. And so it begins in the second paragraph of the general instructions. It says the witness of the early church teaches us that individual Christians devoted themselves to prayer at fixed times. Then in different places, it soon became the established practice to assign special times for common prayer. For example, the last hour of the day when evening draws on and the lamp is lighted, or the first hour when night draws to a close with the rising of the sun. In the course of time, other hours came to be sanctified by prayer in common. 
These were seen by the fathers as foreshadowed in the Acts of the Apostles. There we read of the disciples gathered together at the third hour. The prince of the apostles, that is Peter, went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Such prayer in common gradually took the form of a set cycle of hours. This liturgy of the hours or divine office enriched by readings is principally a prayer of praise and petition. Indeed, it is the prayer of the church with Christ and to Christ. And so when we, when we look at these passages that are drawn from, you know, what the general instructions is saying, Oh, let's start with what the general instructions is not saying. The general instructions is not saying that already in acts, we have this uh, liturgy of the hours that had, had already been codified and developed and, uh, that early Christians were praying right out, right out the gate, um, but that there was this all-pervasive climate of prayer in the early church. And what I mean by that is that the early Christians were praying, and the apostles were teaching them that prayer was absolutely essential for Christian living, and not just praying in private, but also coming together to pray in common as well. And so we have this kind of alluded to Uh, When we read of the apostles going up to the temple to pray, arising at different times uh, during the night to pray, Um, and certainly this has its roots in the life of Christ. You know, Jesus himself was leaving the crowds. He was leaving the crowds, withdrawing into solitude to pray to his Father in heaven. Uh, He was at various points in time, and we'll read about this in, in future episodes, but at various points in time, he was be really beginning his ministry in prayer before he healed, before he chose his apostles, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so this all-pervasive climate of prayer really just means that Christians were praying. They were praying at, a, at regular intervals, and this was absolutely essential for Christian living from the very beginning. When um, <clears throat> in the reading of the germ here, there's uh, a couple things that stick out to me. Um, you read in the course of time, other hours came to be sanctified by common prayer. The uh, the ter- the phrase "other hours" implies that it's comparing those hours to something else. And mm-hmm. so, like right before that, right there appears to be this established practice already of praying morning. Of a, of a Jew praying in the morning and in the evening. Right. And then it says these other hours um, come to be sanctified. And we'll, I think we'll look, as we look at the early church witness, we, we come to see, okay, what are these other hours? Um, and then the second thing is the line right following that. It says these were seen, these other, these other hours, seen by the fathers as foreshadowed in the Acts of the Apostles. And I think that's that's interesting. Um, the term foreshadowed. Mm-hmm. You know, when we when we read foreshadowed, what do we think of? You know, we we think of um, like Isaac and Abraham, right? Mm-hmm. And Isaac is uh, carrying his, the wood up the mountain upon which he will be uh, sacrificed by his father, right? And the church would say, "Well, we see we see Christ." Uh, foreshadowed in this, you know, right. so there's the literal sense and then there's the spiritual sense, but we see in the spiritual sense, Christ, um, this is a type of Christ. And we see, we see that throughout the scriptures. So it's interesting here where the germ is saying like th- in these couple passages, you know, these four or five passages of acts where L- Luke, the writer uh, t- explicitly mentions the time that certain events happened. Um, mm-hmm. And they're saying that that is a foreshadow of these other hours being sanctified. So I think we would be anachronistic to say that there was happening in Acts, that the apostles were like already praying at all these hours, mm-hmm. or that all Christians were already praying at all these hours. You know, Or like that the, they were even giving instruction. Or that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, and maybe they were, um, but the Acts doesn't explicitly say that they were. Right. Um, but the German saying, 
when Luke kind of writes these things and that these events happen at these hours, it was foreshadowing what, what happens, but then also that the church looks back at Acts and finds precedent for these to be important, just like we had talked about in the last episode of, of how during the second temple period, they were looking back to, to earlier texts to find precedent for praying at certain times. Right. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's important just to, to state that. I think it can be easy to kind of go back into acts and kind of pull these passages and say, well, here, here we have it. Here we have it. They're praying the hours already in acts. And I think that misses the point. Uh, as you say, as you stated, you know, that the apostles are at various points in time are praying at these uh, fixed hours really is a, is a kind of a type of foreshadowing of, of what eventually became in the church fixed hours that were prayed both by uh, the lady, the clergy, and even eventually, you know, monastics. And so, you know, we, you and I had uh, talked a little bit earlier this week and uh, you had found some uh, interesting uh, things in your reading where it talked about these particular hours being associated with the Roman world and the course of the course of the day. Can you say a few things about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just more about the, the Roman calendar it is different than our calendar, right? Like in antiquity, in the ancient world, there were at least kind of three ways of recording. The civil day was like the official way of recording time. And it would go from midnight to midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and so let's say it was one, two, three, all the way up to 24, like military time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so then there was the natural day. And then that was divided into 12 equal parts, starting at the sunrise and going to the sunset. And then the night watch was divided into four equal watches. So here's the thing. During the day, it was measured with a sundial. And at night, it was measured with a water clock, which was a Greek, um, a Greek invention. Hmm. So, and so here's the thing. In the summer, the hour was longer than the winter, right? Mm-hmm. So, because as we know, summers are longer than winters, but, but the hours remained equal parts. So, like, in the summer, the first hour might begin at 4.30 a.m., which mm. makes the third hour at like 7 a.m. But in the winter, that third hour would be 9 a.m. Mm. Um, and then that just continues all the way up to the close of the day, which you know might be 7.30 p.m. in the summer or in the winter, 4.30 p.m. Um, so the hour, when we say like, we often say, well, the, the third hour is 9 a.m., the the sixth is 12, the ninth is 3 p.m. That's not necessarily the case in the summertime, mm-hmm. but it might be the case in the wintertime. So, so basically, that's the point. It's these 12 fixed hours that was measuring the day. All right. So then, so, so that's where we get this whole idea of like, of tracking the hours in terms of the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, et cetera. So when we, when we get into the Acts of the Apostles and we read that, the uh, uh, apostles are going up to the temple, let's say at the third hour, or they're praying at the sixth hour or at the ninth hour, uh, that these are more reflective of the civil day of the Roman world than they are of necessarily fixed times of prayer within the temple at that point in time. Yeah. And it's interesting that Luke mentions that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because nothing in the scriptures is arbitrary. Every word matters. Mm-hmm. Right. So Luke takes pains to write the time. And so that, so that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, well, why don't we look at, why don't we look at those hours? Right. The, the first one is Acts 2, 1 through 15. Mm-hmm. And so it says, uh, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And the Holy Spirit pours out, all these events happen. And then Peter stands up and he says, uh, because people are ridiculing them. And then he says, uh, these men are not drunk since it is only the third hour. Right. You know, what's interesting is I think that this, this comes, you know, after 
you know, in Luke's gospel, so not in the Acts of the Apostles, but in Luke's gospel, uh, I think it's in chapter 24, where he already has, he already has mentioned that the, um, that the Christians were in the, they were in the temple continually blessing God, you know, and so it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, and then at this point that Pentecost comes, you know, they've been instructed by the Lord to go into Jerusalem and to, and to enter the upper room and to gather there and pray. And they're praying there for, they're praying their novena, right? They're praying the novena of, of nine days, waiting for the the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it's at that it's at, at that third hour. It's at that third hour that the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And it's uh, you know, at this hour, uh, what is it that the they're being ridiculed for, right? They're being ridiculed because uh they are they must be drunk. And the the allusion is or, or the reference then it, Peter's like, well, no, this isn't possibly the case because uh, it's only the third hour. Mm-hmm. Which Jews didn't drink, in, Jews at this time really didn't eat until the sixth hour. Mm-hmm. So the the Feast of Weeks, so Pentecost mm-hmm. is the Feast of Weeks, um, that falls between like May and June. And it remembers it remembers the giving of the Torah at Sinai. That's what the Feast of Weeks is about. So Paul's point is, listen, it's like summertime. It's only 7 a.m. Um, we don't eat until like almost 11 a.m., right? And so obviously we're not drunk because it's only 7 a.m. and we don't eat. So that's, that's his point. Um, and I think Luke, you know, Luke's going to write the hour um, because it's kind of important that that this is the, the events of the Holy Spirit pouring out upon these people, that, that they're not drunk. This isn't just some natural thing. This is a supernatural thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one, right, is um, chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And this right. is when he has the vision of of the the blanket coming down with all the animals on it and God says go and eat. So that's that's the second mention of an hour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and then um chapter three, verse one, it says Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So if they're mm-hmm. going up mm-hmm. if they're going up yeah. to the temple to pray at about at the hour of prayer, that is the ninth hour. Uh, this would at least allude to and give credibility to those who would who would suggest that there was actually a midday kind of hour of prayer at the temple. Yeah, here's the thing. So in the synagogue, there are um, three hours of prayer. It starts starts in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when the new day begins. Evening, morning, and afternoon. And so then in the Jewish tradition, a... This guy, this he's a professor at um, of Jewish and Christian studies in early Christianity. His name is Asher Finkel, and he wrote this essay in this in this book called "Into God's Presence," uh, which is about prayer in the New Testament. And he says all adult Jews were commanded to repeat four Torah selections both in the morning and the evening. Hmm. And thereby bracketing their waking day by the principal teachings of the Torah. So those four, they would, the four uh, selections that every adult Jew had to pray in the morning and evening was the the Decalogue from Hmm. Deuteronomy 5. And and he says that portrays how the laws of God govern all areas of human relationship, Hmm. Um, which is interesting, right? Hmm. They're praying the Decalogue, and they're right away reminding themselves, okay, this is what how I need to live towards God and towards others. Then they'd pray the Shema, and I, I can't remember the Shema off the top of my head. Do you remember at all? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one yes. of the readings. Yeah, I think on uh, Saturday, yeah, I think on Saturday night. Yeah, Saturday night. Um, so they would pray the Shema, and he says, Finkel says that declares that ultimate authority rests in the transcendental God of Israel. And so, so they're reminding that, like, that God, the Lord, um, is the God of Israel, 
and all the authority is his. Right. Then the section, the third part was a portion on rewards and punishment. And he says that highlights a believer's awareness of eternal rewards and punishments by one's own choice of actions. So that's a section from Deuteronomy chapter 11. And they're remembering, okay, how I live matters. Um, I think of Paul in one, either first or second Corinthians. It says we all must come before the judgment seat of Christ and be uh, judged for the things done in the body, both the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul, Paul is a, as a faithful Pharisee would have been praying that portion of Deuteronomy every morning and evening. Um, and so certainly he's, his statement in Corinthians is built on the understanding of this passage from Deuteronomy mm-hmm. of reward and punishment. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is um, this concluding section of Numbers 15. And basically that passage in Numbers, um, it's, it starts with somebody broke one of the commandments and then God responds and he gives, he gives a command to wear fringes on the edge of the blue fringes on the edge of their garment. And uh, Finkel says that one can trigger God's awareness by the use of blue fringes on the garment as a mantra. Hmm. So, hmm. okay. So every adult Jew would be praying these passages morning and evening. And then Finkel says this practice, which was to be recited at home and in the synagogue, um, entered the daily sacrifice service of the Levites and priests in the Jerusalem temple. Interesting. So, so they started the sacrifice in the temple was in the morning and in the evening. Um, and so here we're going to jump back to this Acts of the Apostles, um, chapter 3, when Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Um, this practice of praying the morning, evening prayer, these four prayers, um, begin to be prayed in the temple and during one of the sacrifices. Mm. So they would actually stop the the liturgy of that sacrifice and they would move to a different part of the temple. Um, I think it was just a lower part. And then they would do a liturgy of these four prayers. And in the temple were the priests and the Levites. Mm -hmm. So that's the first point. The adult Jews were praying these prayers morning and evening. And the second point is that the evening sacrifice during this time began to be sacrificed in the more towards the afternoon. Hmm. Um, so the evening sacrifice would be happening around the ninth hour. I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this reference in Acts is is referring to this event where the sacrifice in the temple is happening kind of at that time, mm-hmm. um, which makes us think they're going to the temple around this time, um, which becomes this time of prayer. Yeah. You know, as we're, as we're looking at this and we're going to talking about the various times in which people are praying sometimes, you know, during the morning and the evening, uh, they may be praying in the synagogue. Uh, we talked about last week, how even synagogue worship had come to, uh, be associated with what was happening in the temple, the temple sacrifices, the morning and evening, uh, prayers that were going on. But even if they weren't happening within the synagogue, you know, people were doing them in the homes, but here you have an obvious references to, Mm -hmm. uh, the disciples gathering together. Uh, this is something that they're doing in community and then, you know, Peter and John obviously think it's important enough for them to go up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at the hour of this sacrifice that's being offered, where which is being combined with this liturgy in which the uh, what have been determined to be the essential kind of passages uh, that would shape the consciousness and and the hearts of of the Jewish people would be read aloud and would be prayed together. Uh, that they're they consider this important enough that they're going up to the temple at this hour of prayer to pray, um, and then you know of course we have the next sentence mm-hmm. uh, in the general instructions that says and then you know in Acts sixteen 
At about midnight, Paul and Silas, while they're imprisoned, they're praying and singing hymns to God. And what this tells me is that prayer was not for these early Christians. Prayer was not something that they tried to fit into their day. It was the day was being ordered around prayer, you know, and so you bring in, you know, St. Paul, you know, if he, if he's going to say things like, you know, in Colossians, everything's been created through him and for him. He is before all else that is and in him, everything holds together in being. If this is the case, if, if Christ is the center of the universe, everything orders around him. And what is prayer? What is prayer for these early Christians? What is prayer for us? But communion with the one through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made. Yeah. I think we also, we need to do justice, recognizing the context in they're in. So they are not in secular America. Mm. Mm -hmm. They're in Jerusalem, which is though it's under oppression um, by a foreign empire, it's a theocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, the civilization is ordered around the worship of God. So we, d- I did conflate a little bit the sacrifices and prayer in the temple, but there, prayer, there were hours of prayer in the temple, early morning at the time of the morning sacrifice, about the ninth time of the evening sacrifice, and then the evening and sunset. But society and civil life as a Jewish community was ordered around the temple and around um, these times of prayer. Mm-hmm. And so society lent itself towards the early Christians continuing to participate in this prayer um, and in these hours of prayer, where our society does not lend itself in the mm-hmm. same way. So that's the first point. The second point is during times of persecution, we, we, we need to be honest and ask the question, um, how did that affect the hours of prayer? You know, when Paul's in prison, was when Paul is in prison, is he going up to the temple at the hour of, of prayer? We don't know. Well, uh, no, he's not. He's in prison. But is he praying at the times of the sacrifices? Well, we don't know. At the so very least, we, at the very least, we know that he at least once rose at midnight to pray and sing hymns to God. Yeah, you know, so, at least, yeah. You know, so I think I think the temptation would be to say that in Acts we read of this beautiful Christian community. You know, they've just come off the heels of the resurrection, the sending of the Holy Spirit. They're strengthened by numbers, and you know, we read Acts uh, two forty two, and it says you know, that they all held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. And, you know, they were all of one heart and one mind, and they had everything in common, etc. So, you know, and then, you know, they kind of go and and it begins to grow. And then as persecution enters in, then all of a sudden, it's just like, well, we can't be going up to the temple, we can't be praying at these regular times necessarily, because, we're concerned for our family's welfare and um, mm-hmm. all these kinds of, you know, uh, concerns that they have related to persecution, being imprisoned, et cetera. So, and then after persecution, so once they kind of endure the persecution, they get through it, then, you know, the bishops say, well, uh, let's get back to that regular regimen of prayer that, you know, they had in our early days. I think that's less yeah. likely than uh, the alternative, which would be which which would be to say that what most what most likely happened was during persecution. This the call to prayer was even more, actually more important. The stakes were even higher because you know as we read in uh, you know Revelation um, and as we know from church history is that you know there were. There were Christians who, in the face of persecution, who were abandoning the faith. You know, mm-hmm. they were abandoning the faith because the pressure was so great. And so to to keep a, a regimen of prayer, to keep uh, faithful to a life of prayer, was even more important in that even though it may not have been kept, let's say, according to 
you know, according to this pattern that coincided with temple sacrifice, or maybe it wasn't kept to the strict, like, you know, at the, at the third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, et cetera, you know, that it was still something that was at the very least. And I think we'll see this when we kind of dive into some documents from the second century is that at the very least Christians knew the importance they knew the importance of mm-hmm. regular prayer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah. I think we do have to, we have to do some theological speculating. The and and let's jump into that. Like, there aren't explicit sources, um, so there's no New, New Testament source saying you must pray at these hours. Right. Um, and then the sources that we have. Um, the church order sources and some of the patristic writers we're talking like, you know, third centuries kind of some, somewhere in there, especially around the Constantinian turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it starts to become more explicitly written that uh, Christian, well, especially priests and clergy and bishops ought to be praying at these hours. Um, and so, I think we we do have to do some speculating of how did people pray. Um, and I think there's precedent of praying these hours, you know, and it does fully develop, but to what extent is it developing? We don't, we don't really know, but it's likely that Christians are praying at, at these hours and continuing this practice. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the greatest, uh, the greatest argument would be to track the organic development of the liturgy. Let's say um, you see mm-hmm. that liturgical development happens in stages and it happens incrementally over time, but it's um, it's never a, well, we're, we're going to, we're one, at one point in time, the church was doing it this way. And then 300 years later, they decided to do it completely different. Like that's unprecedented right. in the history of the church. And so, you know, as we look back, we might say the same with regards to, with regards to prayer is that the, a regular kind of daily regimen of prayer for the early Christians, it developed incrementally over time, but it was always built. It, it looks a lot more like building blocks than it does, you know, that, uh, well, early on they have the, had this fixed order of prayer and then, you know, it kind of went away for a time and then, you know, 300 years later after Constantine, it was like, well, let's do this. It was less likely that more Mm -hmm. likely that it just incrementally, you know, it developed over time. And by the time that it was, you know, Christianity became more public and official, uh, the religion of the state and the uh, freedoms were afforded to not only to worship, but to, you know, to build uh, cathedrals and to build, you know, churches, um, that this, you know, they began to expand on what had already uh, developed before before that. Uh, and so I think, you know, but I'd like to yeah. just, rather than just kind of, uh, kind of guesswork at this, I think it's good to at least draw out specific sources. Uh, there's a book that, you know, you yes. and I have discussed that has been helpful for me. And I know I, I've at least read online that, uh, you know, some people really like this book. Others think it's a little bit outdated. I don't know. But um, Robert Taft uh, put together a, a book called The Liturgy of the Hours in the East and the West. I find it to be, you know, I find that he brings a healthy historical kind of critical lens to uh, the development of the Liturgy of the Hours. You know, he doesn't just kind of say, well, there you have it. You know, the in the Acts, the early Christians were praying at fixed hours, you know, um, but he yeah. takes a critical look at it. And I think he pulls from a variety of different sources. But one of uh, a couple of those that I'd like to draw attention to is Origen, who is in the third century in the two, right around uh, 250. And Origen bears witness uh, to the reality that uh, there there was this kind of daily regimen of prayer built on the practice that Daniel alludes to um, when uh, he rises to pray three times, three times each day. And Origen says this, he says, he prays, that is the Christian prays without ceasing 
who combines his prayer and necessary works and suitable activities with his prayer for his virtuous deeds or the commandments he has fulfilled are taken up as part of his prayer. And so already you see her, you know, origins, you know, essentially saying that, look, uh, you know, the Christian who lives his life in the world is, has many responsibilities, but the important thing is that, uh, that he combines his prayer with these necessary works that he ha- has been entrusted with. And then he, he goes on and he says, only in this way, though, can we say that he can pray without ceasing if we can say that his whole life is one mighty integrated prayer. Of such prayer, part is that is what is usually called prayer and ought not to be performed less than three times a day. And this is, this is where it draws from Daniel. This is clear from the practice of Daniel, who, when great danger threatened him, prayed three times a day. And then he talks about Peter. You know, he quotes from Acts. He also says David, you know, talks about how David in the Psalms, in the morning you shall hear my prayer, and lifting up my hands like an evening sacrifice. And at midnight I rose to praise you for the judgments of your justice. And so Origen is just, I think he's saying, he's instructing Christians to say, look, uh, we ought to be men and women of prayer. And this is what we see in our scriptures. This is what we see in the witness of the apostles, that prayer is absolutely essential to the Christian life. And so regular prayer throughout the day and even in the, in the night is not just an important part, but ought to be the focus of, of cultivating a, a deep uh, life with Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that line when he says, of such prayer, part is what is usually called prayer, ought not to be performed less than three times each day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we might remember, well, so the Didache, which is written sometime between, let's say, 50 and 120 AD, um, says, pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Mm. So there is this practice, which Origen is referring to, of we should pray at least three times a day. And it's interesting, you know, are they, are they talking like morning, afternoon, evening? Um, mm-hmm. What explicitly are those three times a day? And then the second part that, or it's interesting to me that like, or in this passage, origin right away looks at Daniel mm-hmm. and he's, he's trying, he's trying to find scriptural precedent for the practice that's happening. Right. You know, which is, which is a pattern we've seen. We we're seeing that with acts. We're seeing that with um, other places in the Old Testament. And then theologically, where they'll often say, we pray three times a day because God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hmm. There Um, you go. Yeah, that's great. And so it's interesting how they want to find scriptural and theological precedent of how, of the practices, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and I think that, you know, that may even arise from this notion. You know, I remember, you know, as a Protestant, I you know, you would work, uh, the, the exact, in the exact opposite way, you know, you'd say, well, let's try to find, you know, let's read scripture for what it is. Let's try to do the historical analysis. Let's get to the meaning, the right interpretation of a text. And then we'll build from there on the practices, um, that we ought to implement in our life for the way we ought to live. Right. Well, you know, what I find in the early church and as you read the fathers is that, you know, the father's you know, and the early Christians, you know, they've received from the apostles, they've received the traditions, they re- they've received the the way of life, they re- they've received the law of Christ, and this is already developing. It's already mm-hmm. developing, and they don't have their own scripture copy of the scriptures sitting on their you know bedside at home. You know, they're they're trusting that when they go to liturgy, uh, when they go to uh, church, and the bishop is uh, exhorting them, that what they're receiving is the tradition that's been handed on to them, and so they're already building out this life of of uh, prayer, of devotion, of Christian living based on the traditions that have been handed on from the apostles, and so. When you have origin, let's say, or other church fathers saying, you know, reflecting or kind of doing this work of this is what's already happening. Let's go back now and let's. Mm-hmm. let's well, here's here's an example. Clement of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's living the same time, born 150, dies 215. And he says 
Now, if some assign definite hours for prayer, as for example, the third, sixth, and ninth hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's writing and saying the same thing, similar things that, that we pray the, that these hours of prayer are being assigned to us, hmm. right? It's part of that tradition, the third, the sixth, and then the ninth. Yeah. Because, because what was happening in the Acts of the Apostles was a foreshadowing. <laughs> to go back to what we mm-hmm. said at the, at the beginning. You know, and then uh, I think, you know, you have Tertullian. Uh, one of the texts that I find really fascinating is this uh, this text from T- Tertullian on prayer. Uh, again, I'm gathering this from the Liturgy of the Hours in the East and the West by Taft. But what he says um, is that concerning the time of prayer, the external observance of certain hours will not be unprofitable. So he's already saying, you know, saying, you know, and this is uh, in the 200s, you know, that the external observance is going to be is actually is significant. And he says, I mean, those common hours that mark the intervals of the day, the third, sixth, and the ninth, which are found to have more solemn, uh, have been more solemn in the scriptures. And so he goes back and this is fascinating to me because our reformed liturgy of the hours kind of builds on this. And he says at the third hour, the Holy spirit was first poured out upon the gathered disciples. And so when we pray mid morning prayer, according to the reformed liturgy of the hours, uh, often, uh, ex- with the exception of Friday, often the uh, the concluding prayer will uh, draw out an allusion to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, and that for, and for that reason, you know, every time we pray mid morning prayer at ten o'clock here at the House of Prayer, we always begin by singing the hymn of um, the the prayer to the Holy Spirit. And so, the reform of the Liturgy of the Hours kind of got a hold of this, where it was like. You know, this is this is significant. You know, this is when the coming of the Holy Spirit came, and this is actually going to help shape the nature of this hour of prayer. So I just find that that, that to be interesting. The, sec- the second one is he talks about Peter on the day he experienced the vision of the whole community in that small vessel had gone upstairs to pray at the sixth hour. And for this reason, you know, there's uh, a couple times a week uh, during for midday prayer. Uh, the midday prayer hour, there will be a concluding prayer related to Peter having received uh, this vision. And then lastly, uh, he talks um, about uh, the when John and Peter were going up at the ninth hour when he restored the paralytic uh, to health. And so, you know, Tertullian just, you know, he says, he goes on to say that although these hours simply exist without any command for their observance. So at this point, it wasn't like, you know, the people were being commanded, they had to do this, but that it was still good to establish a presumption that might reinforce the admonition admonition to pray in order to tear us away from our affairs for this duty as if by law, so that we at least pray not less than three times a day. And so I just... Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of instruction, I get, again, I think just sheds light on this conviction, you know, among the early Christians that a regu- regular regimen of prayer in the life of every believer was absolutely essential for Christian living. Yep. And so Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian um, are born around the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Origen is born like 30 years after those two. And then Cyprian is born like around 200. And so they're, they're kind of like first, second generation. Right. Mm -hmm. And Cyprian says, um, and in discharging the duties of prayer, we find that the three children with Daniel being strong in faith and victorious in captivity observed the third, sixth, and ninth hour, as it were for a sacrament of the Trinity, which in the last times had to be manifested. And so oh, man. here we see Cyprian too, right? He's, he's looking into the old Testament. He's, he hears this fo- foreshadowing of the blessed Trinity. And now we have, this is our theological precedent as to why we pray at the third, sixth and ninth hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, you know, where are we? We are in the middle. We're in the middle of the third century, right? We're in like the two fifties, two sixties, somewhere in there. And the Jerusalem temple has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Christians are, are now under persecution by the Roman Empire. Um, Judaism and Christianity have 
have split into two different things. And Judaism itself is starting to develop the importance of fixed hour prayer. Hmm. And so are the Christians. Um, and so I think we need to, to mention that when they're mentioning the third, sixth, and ninth hours, you know, it's, I think it comes down to like, here's how the day is breaking down Mm -hmm. in equal chunks. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's lending by the day, by stopping and praying in equal chunks of the day, the aim is to pray without ceasing. Yes. Um, But just like one who's going to canoe across the ocean, they need to stop at little islands along the way. So these like little points in time are like little islands in the day that we stop and we, and we pray at these fixed points, Mm -hmm. you know, and even through the night. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, they become, you know, it makes me think of that, uh, that prayer, uh, that midday prayer concluding prayer that says, you know, this midday moment of rest is your welcome gift, uh, to us. And, you know, that's what, you know, this regular kind of developing these regular intervals of prayer in our lives, you know, I think the wisdom of this is that, you know, like you said, I mean, they provide these kind of points uh, throughout the day that allow us to come back, to allow us to detach ourselves from temporal things as good as they may be, and to be reminded of the reality of things, which is held together by the eternal, by, by God himself, and to constantly come back to our identity our identity as Christians, you know, in Christ. And that takes, you know, to just go throughout your day without giving thought to that. It's very easy, easy to lose that, you know, even if you do begin in the morning, which I, you know, I think that's, uh, that's huge. It would be a good first step if you're not already doing that is to begin by offering your day to the Lord in prayer, you know, in the morning, but, you know, to do that throughout the day at different intervals is going to only heighten your sense of not only your identity in Christ, but also the significance of the labors that he's entrusted to your care. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of practical applications we can make at another time. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to sit with the fact that the patristic writers are explicitly mentioning that, that the Christians are praying at fixed hours throughout the cycle of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, The church orders are going to say the same thing, right? Um, And and those are documents that are kind of like manuals for bishops and priests um, and and others of of how to live a Christian life. And they're going to say to pray at the third, six hours when we awake and Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. things like that. But I think the point is, right, over the past two episodes of seeing this slow incremental development and to the point of where we stand now in the three hundreds of the practice of stopping throughout the day for explicit prayer. Now they don't say how long, Mm -hmm. you know, so we need to be honest there too. At this point, they're not saying stop for 30 minutes at the third hour, Mm -hmm. but at the third hour pray, maybe that's a five second prayer. Maybe that's in the, our father, Maybe that's something longer, depending on one state in life and time. Um, but those will be all like I think practical applications that can be drawn from this. Yeah, and I think I, I mean I think you know to kind of bring things to a close, we'd be remiss. I mean I think you know if we didn't at least mention you know that this is one of the great gifts that the liturgy of the hours does give to us. You know, liturgy, the liturgy of the hours as we have it. Uh, the reformed uh, liturgy of the hours that you know is promulgated by Paul the Sixth you know, in the, in the seventies is a great gift to the church because it is so accessible to not just the, the priests and the religious, but also to the laity to really, it's a tool to be able to implement this fixed hour prayer. And, you know, that's not even getting into the, uh, the truths, the objective truths of, and the theological reality of what is actually happening, you know, when we gather for prayer for specifically for the liturgy of the hours at those various times by virtue of the fact that it is sacred liturgy. And, you know, that's for another episode down the, down the line, but um, suffice Mm -hmm. it to say, you know, if you're not already praying the liturgy of the hours and you're just even hopefully even just, uh, you know, interested or, 
you know, wanting to at least explore, you know, what is this? How can I kind of tap into this gift? Or if you've prayed the Liturgy of the Hours before, but maybe haven't uh, tried your hand at, you know, one of the midday hours of prayer, which can be a great gift, whether you're, whether you're a stay, you know, stay at home dad, whether you're a stay at home mom or working in the, in the world, uh, whatever you're doing, whatever, uh, that those midday hours can be a great way to give, uh, five to 10 minutes to pray in the liturgy of the church, to pray in the prayer of the church and recentering, uh, your life in Christ. And, you know, gaining strength to once again, take up those tasks that the Lord has, has called you to throughout your day. So, um, man, you know, if, if we're looking back at the early church and we see this, this way of life that is so fixed and ordered around prayer, and we're wondering, man, how could I possibly do that in my life? We have, you know, the Catholic church has given us the tools to do that. And, uh, and so, you know, thanks be to God that we have, uh, the liturgy of the hours. But we should probably bring uh, this yep. episode to a close. And uh, when we come back, we'll be continuing in the general instructions with the prayer of Christ, uh, the next paragraphs that really dial into how uh, the liturgy, the hours, uh, enables us to tap into the very prayer which Christ himself offers to the Father on our behalf. Uh, so, but until then, why don't we, uh, why don't we go ahead and close in prayer, Gabriel, and uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless us, protect us from all evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Cool. All right, Gabriel. Talk to you later. Okay, God Bye. bless. Thank you for listening to Vox Sponsae a podcast on the Liturgy of the Hours brought to you by the St. Thomas More House of Prayer, a Catholic retreat center in the Diocese of Erie, Pennsylvania, with the mission of praying and promoting the Liturgy of the Hours, the public and communal prayer of the Catholic Church. For more information, visit us online at liturgyofthehours.org.